Hey you, and welcome to a new episode of The Decade Podcast. My name is Jonathan, and I'm one of the hosts here on this podcast, and you will soon hear my dear friend and co-founder Melker. This is a podcast where we curiously explore holistic sustainability and answers to the question, how on earth can we live together? Join us as we learn from inspiring stories from champions of sustainability and beyond. And we hope to inspire you to think, act and work for a better planet for all throughout this decade of action. Today's guest, Rob Hopkins, is a co-founder of Transition Town Totnes and Transition Network and the author of several books, including his latest one, What Is to What If? Unleashing the power of imagination to create the future that we want. The reason I find Rob's work so appealing is because imagination is something I think that we're in so much deficit of. That is something that we gradually lose when we grow up and become adults. And why is imagination so crucial for us humans in 2022? I mean, the latest IPCC report is telling us that we have a small and shrinking window for change and that is shrinking fast. And what if could actually be the two most important and powerful words in our world right now. And besides writing books about transition, Rob also have his own podcast series from what if to what next, which invite listeners to send in their what if questions and then explores how to make them a reality. And in 2012, he was voted uh, one of the independence top 100 environmentalists and was on Nesta and the observers list of Britain's 50 new radicals. And by listening to this episode, you will learn how you can become more imaginative, both in your personal and professional life, how to form formulate a great what-if question with transformative capacity, and I can ensure you that you will be inspired by some of the transformative stories behind Rob's work. Rob explains that physics demands that we reimagine everything. Our food system, our education system, our transport system, our economic system. And that all transformative projects start with great what-if questions. And if we keep coming back to our imaginative space... Our imagination grows, followed by a sense of what's possible grows, and that's what we need to see in the world, now more than anything. I really hope that you enjoy this episode, and thank you for listening and supporting our podcast. See you in there. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Decade Podcast. Uh, very excited to have Rob Hopkins with us here today. How are you, Rob? Hi, delighted to be here. Lovely to see you both. Fantastic. Now, you're one of the co-founders of the Transition Town Totnes and Transition Network, and you are also the author of several books, including your latest book, What Is to What If?, Unleashing the power of imagination to create the future that we want. Now, Rob, before we jump into our conversation here, how would you, with your own words, describe yourself as a person? Who is um, Rob Hopkins? That's always a tricky question. If I get asked at parties, what do you do? It's always like, well, how long have we got? I, I, mm. I, uh, so I, I'm one of the people who started the transition movement about 14 years ago, first in my town here and then supporting its spread around the world. I do a podcast as well called From What Is to From From What If to What Next. Uh, so at the moment I my my work is a mixture of of working supporting the transition movement, uh, doing talks and workshops around imagination which is something we're going to come on to talk about a bit more. I'm involved in a couple of projects in my town. Uh, I'm one of the founders of a 
the UK's first 100% community-owned brewery and also with a very ambitious community-led development project called Atmos. And in my spare time, I draw and I do printmaking mm. and stuff like that. I live in a house with, and I've got four kids, most of whom have gone off and out into the world now. But yeah, that's me. I live in Totnes in Devon in the southwest of England. Mm. Cool. Amazing. And I've, I've seen these pictures on your Instagram and they're beautiful. Um, so just for context, as this uh, helps the listeners know who you are and what we're talking about here, I'm really curious to hear you speak about in your own words, uh, why did you start to do the things that you do today? Like there's to me, a very clear connection between the transition town, the transition network and your book and generally what you're involved with. Where does this drive come from? And then maybe we can get into more to speak about what these uh, topics that you're involved with are. I think in terms of where the drive comes from, I think I've always been, I've always been very motivated by, by what's wrong in the world and by injustice and by things that seem blatantly wrong. I think, you know, since I was about 14, I've been involved in politics in various different ways. Punk was a huge influence for me when I was younger, that whole kind of do-it-yourself culture. And there was a beautiful thing from the time, from like 1977 or something, that, was, that showed you how to play three chords on a guitar. And it said, here are three chords, now form a band. And I think that that kind of spirit really has underpinned a lot of what I do. I, I discovered permaculture when I was about 22, which was a massive in, influence on me. And um, I guess I've always been, I had my kind of climate change dark night of the soul, I guess, was in around 2004. And up to that point, I'd been teaching permaculture but then when it really landed with me, what the scale was of what was happening here, and I looked around at the permaculture movement around me, which at that time was quite small and quite kind of, uh, quite happy with being quite small, actually. Mm -hmm. You know, it was quite sort of uh, very rooted in in alternative culture. I thought, no, we've, we've got to find a way that we can take these principles, but mainstream them really quickly. How do we build a kind of a a Trojan horse that we can put permaculture and the work of Joanna Macy and other things in, but that don't need hours and hours to explain what they're all about. So people just say, oh, it's the Trojan horse thing as it wheels past them into the city, you know. So that was really what we tried to do with with Transition to try and find a way to mainstream these things. So it's been my work ever since, really. And, I, you know, what what drives me is, you know, I have kids. I want them to to not inherit hell on earth and also from when i was a permaculture teacher i loved to see how this stuff can transform people's lives you know no one ever came back to me and said you know my life was doing all right until you taught me how to grow lettuce and then it was downhill all the way from then you know it's not how it works you know this stuff is really people deserve better i guess really is what underpins what i do people deserve a hell of a lot better mm, mm. love that love that and um could we dig in a bit deeper into the essence of what if? Well, could you share the story behind that a bit more? And why do you think these words are so powerful in today's world? And why did you decide to write a book with that title? Yeah, I, I often find myself saying that I, I think they're the two most powerful and important words in our language at the moment. Mm. because Mariami Kaba, who's a great hero of mine, the prison abolition activist in America who wrote an amazing book called We Do This Till We Free Us, which I really recommend to anyone listening. She says in that book, we live in a system that has been locked into a false sense of inevitability. You know, I, I'm sitting here today in the UK where our appalling government here where their response to to climate change and to the the crisis in ukraine and the need to break dependence on russian oil and gas has been so vastly unimaginative it's just painful and it's like they can't imagine anything other than just doing things as they've always been done. So there's no interest in insulating the UK has some of the worst housing stock in Europe nothing about energy efficiency it's just about we're going to build seven more massively expensive uh, nuclear power stations 
it's like really like all the organizations we need because we know that climate change and climate science demands in a way that you can't negotiate with physics you know the physics demands that we reimagine everything our food system our education system our transport system our economic system etc 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 we have to reimagine all of mm. that stuff because it doesn't work it was designed for a different time with different priorities our priority now is that in order to have any chance of staying below 1.5 which in itself is a catastrophe we have to get emissions down incredibly fast and and that is about much more than just saying well we'll have electric cars and some nuclear power stations hmm. it's really about a reimagining of the scale that we do things on how we do things and and so for me i i look at the organizations that can make that happen and i don't see them creating the space to have those discussions you know in the same way where are the people in the department of justice having the conversations about what if we had no prisons you know how like uh, what one what would we need to change in order for that to be the case and we have mm. to open up those possibilities because otherwise they don't happen everyone's completely busy and then if everyone's busy and you make no space you just end up doing the same thing you've always done and it's the same in our personal lives same in our organizations in in, in our governments in everything so i i started the, the work of, of writing this book about imagination, because initially I kept reading people, Bill McKibben, Naomi Klein, Amitav Ghosh, people who I really admire who write about the climate emergency, who would say, climate change is a failure of the imagination. This phrase kept coming up again and again and again. And I thought, that's really interesting. And by, mm. by which time, by, by the time I was thinking, wow, that's really interesting, they were off talking about something else. And I was left there going, oh, oh, uh, what, <laughs> what did you mean about that? Really? Like, why would, why would we be having a failure of the imagination in 2022? Surely we're really smart and amazing at everything. And mm. like, why would that be happening? So I started doing some digging and some research and found a really fascinating study that was done in 2010 which uh, was a really big story at the time. It made the front page of Newsweek. It was a really big deal. And it said, basically, imagination and IQ rose together till the mid-90s, at which point IQ kept rising and imagination started what they call a slow and inexorable decline from that point mm -hmm. onwards. So the debates at the time were, oh, what does this mean for economic growth? And what does this mm -hmm. mean for Pixar or whatever? But no one said, what does this mean for the climate movement, for the social justice movements? Because as Walida Imarisha puts it, you cannot build what you cannot imagine. If, you, if, mm. if we can't imagine it, we have a real problem on our hands. And I came, to I came to see that we have created in many ways in the early 2020s a, a perfect storm of factors that are profoundly damaging to the human imagination at the worst possible time in history to do that. And what I love about what-if questions is uh, one of the people who, I, who comes out of the book as one of its great kind of heroes is this guy called uh, Antanas Mokas, who was the guy who became the mayor of Bogota in Colombia and who was convinced that, that, that politics and play needed to go together a lot more. And one of the things he, do, he did was when he became the mayor in Bogota, which had the most corrupt traffic police in all of Colombia at the time and many deaths on the roads in the city, he sacked the entire traffic police department and instead he hired 400 mime artists who stood on the main intersections dressed up like mime artists they had a little a red and a yellow card like football referees and did all this sort of if you were if you were got a red card you were a naughty car and you had to stay there and the well-behaved cars got just beautiful and said to the people who were the traffic police who lost their jobs uh, you can have your job back if you retrain as a mime artist. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> and uh, but he said that he said that a good what if question is when you write the first half of an audacious sentence on a blackboard and you respect people's ability to write the second half. And so I've I see again and again really transformative projects which start with a really good what if question. And so what, what I try and do in the work I do now is to take people on a journey of reconnecting with that part of them, which is their imagination, which often there's a, there's a bit of trauma about sometimes because we, 
we're told that's something you do as a child. You don't need that as an adult. Mm. Uh, no one's going to listen to your imagination. Like, who are you to, 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 to think you can have a good idea and, and reimagine things? And, you know, and, and, and we live in a society that patronizes and belittles and sidelines our imagination. So I try to create a space where it's really valued and invite people to work together to come up with, with really good what-if questions. And it can be a really powerful and, and moving process for people. But I should also just say, you know, it's really important to recognize what I'm not saying is, so we just all need to sit around and imagine all the time, <laughs> you know, like again, to come back to Mariame Kaba, because she's so amazing. She says, we must imagine while we build, always mm. both. Imagine while we build, always both. So it's what I see when I visit transition groups is there's this kind of virtuous feedback that happens where you imagine something, you go and you create it, however small it is. Then you think, well, if we did that, maybe we could do that. And then if you keep coming back to creating those imagining spaces, you get this, the imagination grows and a sense of what's possible grows. And that's something that we need to see in the world now more than anything. Mm, I think. Mm, mm. Love mm. that. Yeah, this is uh, amazing. And it's connecting a lot of dots in my head. So let me see if I can weave this uh, back together and pass the ball back to you, Rob, afterwards. A common theme that we've been discussing here in the podcast uh, that's been coming up a lot is... Uh, it's almost the same, but we've termed it differently. So we were talking about stories. And by that, we mean uh, anything from the personal narrative you have towards the, the cultural narrative, the societal narrative that you carry with you, uh, that you're knowingly carrying or that you're unknowingly carrying. And we had Joe Brewer, a person working for uh, regeneration, ecological restoration. Uh, he was speaking about that societies can be seen as developmentally entrenched that we have developed and dug ourselves down in a trench that we can't see beyond how we got to that development then mm. um so what i'm hearing here is well like we've been speaking also about circular economy where the first question you need to ask is really do we need to consume this so it's in my mind really seeing the box that we're operating within and finding those borders and asking what if we looked outside the borders and it seems like that question comes in to every aspect of what I'm talking about here, the, the stories, the developmental entrenchment and circular economy and all these behaviors. So I often get frustrated when I hear people talk about how we're going to innovate for sustainability. And the answer is to make fast fashion more sustainable. But what if we don't need fast fashion? And I, I love when people come in to ask those questions that completely reframe the conversation. Mm. So I'm just interested to hear how does this resonate with you when you hear this, uh, these connections with how I view some sustainability concepts? Yeah, no, that's really important. One of the big distinctions that I make in the book and that was a real light bulb moment for me was that we live in a society that uses the words innovation, creativity and imagination almost interchangeably as if they're the same thing innovation is very different for me so innovation capitalism loves innovation it's all about innovation all companies want to be seen as innovative all companies want to be seen as creative you know creativity is really taking the imagination and turning it into a form that you can then market and sell and make something out of i don't remember exactly but in the book i found this study that had had looked at uh, job interviews in New York on one day and 930 of them had asked for innovative as a quality and only six had asked for imaginative as a quality because imagination is about <clears throat> is about fundamentally reimagining things the way I talk about it is 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 that it's like pizza in that we all like we all understand pizza right it's great it, it's 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 a simple thing you 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 can you can innovate with pizza in terms of you know putting on different toppings and different flowers and stuff you don't need to reimagine pizza that would be ridiculous to completely reimagine pizza from scratch because it works really really well but actually our our growth based neoliberal economics is not like pizza it's not a system that you can innovate and tinker around with it needs to be profoundly reimagined from scratch so so imagination is often much much less trusted than innovation. In, imagination is much more kind of 
uh, impish and playful and naughty and mischievous and it doesn't always do what what you want it to do uh, and so I think that's a really important distinction and, and the work that I try and do I, I was in Belgium uh, last week and I did a workshop with 150 CEOs from big Belgian companies and the thing that I, I say to them is this is not about your sustainability strategy because your sustainability strategy is it's good that you have one but we're way beyond sustainability strategies mm. at this stage this is an emergency this is the moment when you break the glass and then what do you do? How does your company act as if this was actually an emergency? If you put your organization onto a war footing in terms of actually we this is not just about, you know, what kind of envelopes are we using and, uh, you know, what's our CSR policy? Your CSR policy mm. needs to be this is an emergency. How does this organization play its part? And we saw during COVID that that kind of thing is entirely possible. We saw companies mm. who make engines for Formula One racing cars switch over to making ventilators in about four weeks. We saw craft breweries switching their production lines so they could start making hand sanitizer within about a week. You know, there's beautiful stories from the Second World War. There's about um, the one about the factory that was built in the US, which was built from scratch in six months. And once it was built, it built a B-24 airplane, which has a million working parts, one plane every hour. You know, there are so many stories like that, that when we decide to act like it's an emergency, we can do it. So I, what I try and do when I do workshops with people like that is to say, you know, forget about your five-year development strategy. We're going to start from scratch and anything is possible. And so we always have to start by teaching them how to play again and teaching them how to trust in that. I, so one of the first things I always teach them is that thing from improv theater, the difference between yes, but, and yes, and. Mm -hmm. And you do three rounds of exercise. The first round, one of you suggests we're going on a picnic and you make take it in terms to make suggestions to go on a picnic. Oh, I'll bring some, I'll bring some wine. And the first round, the other person's job is just to shut that, drown that with negativity. Oh God, I hate wine. You know, it's, it, it makes me sick. And I can't, it? and you just take it in turns experiencing that thing. Of, ah, da, da, I've got an idea. <sighs> Second one is you make a suggestion and the other person accepts it, but with no enthusiasm at all. Well, you know, you could mm. bring wine, I guess, but you know, I don't think anyone will drink it. Uh, you know, and then the third one is the yes and one, where you you make a suggestion, and then you you take the other person's suggestion and you build off it. And you take it in turns to build and build and build, and people get to experience that kind of magic that we had as kids when you play with a friend and you're like let's pretend this this is a castle yes and i'll put the man on the top and then we can make the this and you know that that's where you have to start putting people into that mm. kind of state of mind because we have to reimagine everything we don't have any choice and uh uh yeah so so that so that's that's what i say to them this is we're way beyond innovation now innovation is uh is rearranging the chair deck chairs on the titanic and actually what we need to do is to reimagine and imagination is the most important quality to build in you and in your staff and in your team and your organization. And that's only going to happen if you intentionally create the space for that. Mm -hmm. I think it's really fascinating, actually. And I'm glad you brought up the the COVID situation because I was going to ask you about that, actually, because you always, you always hear this conversations as change can only happen in a long period of time, small, tiny, incremental steps at a time. But... COVID like showed us that so clearly that if we communicate that this is a crisis, we need to act accordingly. We need to act together. We need to take responsibility. Then, I mean, we can do basically anything. And why don't we transform that same mindset to the climate crisis or sustainable development? Like that, that, that's a pretty good question, but um, so I'm really glad you brought it up. And I want to come back to that later on. But first, you mentioned there that uh, our imagination started to decline, how you phrased it, in the, in the 90s or, or, or yeah. whatever. Um, I'm really curious to hear more about that. What is it in our like cultural norm or in our process of growing up that suffocates that imagination of ours? And how can we avoid that or how can we work to prevent that so in in that in that piece of research that was done by a a, a researcher in the u.s called kyung hee kim she 
she uh, said that it was due to three things. She said it was due to the decline of uh, free, unstructured play in society. It was due to the rise of screens, and it was due to the rise of testing in schools. Mm. I would add a few things to that. I think I would also add that the fact that we spend less and less time in in, in nature, less and less time outdoors. Mm. Uh, I would add the fact that I think when when we live in a world where we know that the diversity of the natural round the natural world around us is contracting. You know, we've lost 70% of the creatures we share this planet with during my lifetime. Mm. Uh, some people call it pre-traumatic stress disorder. You know, that, 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 that when, we can, when we know that's happening, there was a, um, a microbiologist called René Dubot who said, if we lived on the moon, our imagination would be as barren as the moon. So when we can see that happening, I think that has an impact on our imagination. We know that anxiety and stress and trauma um, affect the part of our brain where our imagination fires from, the hippocampus. So in many ways, we ha and, and, and make it shrink. So people with post-traumatic stress disorder often have a hippocampus 20% smaller uh, than they would otherwise have. And then when that happens, we lose that ability to look at the future in positive and hopeful ways, and we just get stuck in the present and we get stuck in the past. And... Um, and I feel like in many ways at the, in the early 2020s, what we've done is create an economic model in the global north, which is profoundly injurious to the, to, to the hippocampus. We create the perfect conditions. We know that a more unequal a society becomes, the more we create the conditions that are damaging to the hippocampus. We've seen in the last 10 years this sort of imposition of economic austerity where the first thing that you do is you shut the libraries, you cut the funding for the arts, you take away kids' access to free musical instruments, uh, and you create a uh, a precariat, a, a sort of a, um, a section of society who are just terrified that they're just going to mm. fall and keep on falling, all of which are profoundly damaging. We know that systemic racism, economic exclusion are all really damaging to the imagination. Uh, if we don't teach people their own history in an accurate way, I think that is also really, really, really harmful. So mm. there are many factors, and also our education system in 2022 is just appallingly designed yep. in terms of imagination. In fact, in many schools here in the UK, in the state-funded schools, they are just trying to cut the arts out of them altogether. So there are some schools who have no funding for the arts, for theatre, mm. for drama, for creative writing, any of that. Whereas mm. if you go to a privately funded school, there's loads of that. They have a great theatre staff. They do loads of that because they recognise that's how you produce kind of rounded people. So, so I one of the guys I interviewed for the book is a guy called Henry Giroux, who's a political thinker in the US, who 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 I saw using this term a few years ago, where he talked about the Trump disimagination machine. And uh, and and I and it feels like when you put all those things together, there is a a set of things which together are are, are like a perfect storm that is really damaging to the human imagination and it's why i argue that we need to that what we need to do now is is to be building an imagination infrastructure on a national scale putting mm -hmm. back in place the conditions that allow people to live an imaginative life and to recognize that uh it should be it's a universal right to be able mm -hmm. to live a, a life which is rich with imagination and possibility yeah you mentioned there that obviously spending time in nature uh, would increase our imagination. Is there anything else that we can do that could help us increase that ability? There's there's interesting uh, work in, there's an amazing book called The Body Keeps the Score, all about trauma. And in there, he talks about, uh, by Bessel van der Kolk, where, where, where he writes about um, yoga, meditation, uh, different kinds of movement, which are which have uh, are shown to be really uh, healing to the hippocampus. One of my favorite things to do actually is 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 to walk and look up at trees. I think I think if you walk mm. and you look up, I, and I don't know. I'm sure there must be something, and I haven't found it yet. I I'm, I I think that when you walk and you look down like this at, at the smartphone in your hand, 
I'm sure there's different chemicals that are triggered in you than when you look up. You know, it's why when we walk into cathedrals, they're designed so you walk in and you look up. Italian churches are designed with these incredible ceilings. You walk in, you look up. It's why when you walk into a redwood forest and you look up, it's such a, there's something, I, I think that there's, there's like some kind of awe hormone, you know, the feeling mm. of awe <laughs> that we experience in those buildings. So I love to just walk in the forest and look up at the canopy and the light coming through the mm. leaves and that that does it for me. I think we we need to create space away from these highly addictive devices we carry around in our pockets all the time mm. uh, because the time when 25 years ago we might have written a journal, kept a diary, written poetry, <clears throat> written songs, mm. daydreamed, is now just all eaten up with those things. Recently, the chief executive of Netflix was asked who he thought their main competition was, and he didn't say Amazon or Apple. He said sleep. Mm. You know, we, we we have to claim that space back because I always think how many brilliant ideas that 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 could be deeply transformative in this time just are lost because somebody reached for their phone instead of just sitting quietly and, and really thinking an idea through. Mm. Yeah, and and for me, drawing, art making, mm. uh, listening to music, mm. reading novels—you know—the imagine the imagination needs food. Mm. And and <laughs> and the main thing that I always say to people as well is, you know, where the hippocampus is where our imagination fires from. It's also where our memory is based. And in many ways, imagination and memory are very, very similar. When you're being imaginative, you're kind of looking through the cupboards of your imagination and going, ah, what happens if I put this thing together with this bit over here? And it's when you put them together and something new emerges, that's that's the imagination piece. So you can only be as imaginative as you have good stuff in your memories cupboards, as it were. So I always say to people, you know, find the stories of what's happening. You'll find loads of them in the transition movement. You'll find them on your podcast. You'll find them in lots of different places. You know, find those stories and fill your memory with them. Because then when you come to try and imagine a different future it's much much easier if you can say you know we, we, so we want to create car free neighborhoods like in freiburg with a with with a food system like they've got in liege with the kind of car free neighborhoods they're building here and this da, da, da. you know when you know what's possible in different places it becomes so much easier mm -hmm. i love to hear you speak about this this is so fascinating i'm hearing uh, connections to kind of peak experiences and being in flow and uh, creating novel experiences for ourselves something that i do every week on Sundays is to write down uh, what new experiences did I have, what memories did I create? Because in periods where I've been going basically on a loop, on a treadmill, in, in work or whatever, not having that many novel experiences, it's been like the time has passed, but there's nothing to keep that time stretched out because it collapses, because there is no nothing to hang it up on. I know that uh, Nelson Mandela wrote about it in his book while being in, on Robben Island prison, where it was something like a day can feel like forever, but weeks, months, and years go by like seconds because it was just the same, just the same. Um, but you also mentioned like in the very beginning of this episode that you had your own dark night of the soul in terms of climate change. And something that you also write about in your book, uh, as you mentioned here with the hippocampus and its connection to our emotional well-being and there's a lot of mental illness on the rise in, in today's world. And so and we spoke about it in actually just a prior episode where, where Jamie Bristow from the Mindfulness Initiative was talking about how uh, we can become uh, perceptually uh, narrowed down by climate change, doom and gloom, because it shrinks the, the place we have to, in your words, imagine. And uh, so he talks about how mindfulness and taking back control over your own awareness uh, can be a remedy for that. But I'm really interested to hear specifically uh, this connection between depression and how uh, you can use the arts and crafts and uh, those aspects to create some form of new experience and some choices that these persons make to help them bring themselves back out of this. Because I know you have a beautiful story about this in your book. Yeah, the, uh, I mean, the, the first thing I want to say is, you know, I, I, 
I feel like if if people are listening to this and they feel that they are experiencing gloom and doom and 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 that they are experiencing what what people now call eco anxiety, you know, like a deep a deep sense of you know, I would say to people, if you're not regularly terrified about climate change, you're not paying attention. Hmm. This is the existential terrifying thing in the world and and we have a tiny little wind like the the ipc report the other day said we have a brief and rapidly closing window to basically reimagine everything so if people if people are feeling terrified about this you're it's the people who don't feel terrified about this that we really need to worry about you know if, if for me eco anxiety basically means that you have a pulse and that you're paying attention and uh, and so I, you know, I really want to honour that. It's not like there's a, mm. if people experience gloom and doom, <laughs> you have, you have every every reason to do that. But the problem is that that is that that can be kind of paralysing, mm. and that we can get stuck in that. And the, and the question is how to transform that into action. And you know, tomorrow, tomorrow in London, we see the beginning of the next big extinction rebellion, uh, and um, I think, you know. We absolutely need that kind of activism, like multiplied thousandfold, because the people who are in charge at the moment are the worst people possibly to be in charge and are just taking the most disastrous decisions for which future generations will never forgive them. But at the same time, yeah, we I, I feel like it's not enough just to show people how to, you know, so Extinction Rebellion always start with this thing about tell the truth tell the truth and i think that's fundamentally important but if all we do is tell the truth and we don't also point people to to what that world could be like and do some storytelling about how extraordinary it would be to live in a low carbon world how do we i would say to people it's it's like if you imagine in the global north we spent the last 150 years climbing this mountain of supposed progress and uh, and now we stand on the top of this mountain and beneath our feet there's more plastic debt, inequality, anxiety, carbon than anyone ever stood on top of before. And the guides who are with us are saying, we need to get down off this mountain really, really quickly. You can see the clouds are coming. We need to get down off here. For some people, that, that works. You know, For you and I, that works fine to say, they're the guides, they know the mountain, we'll listen to them. It doesn't seem to be working. Mm. On, a, on scale <clears throat> so maybe we'd be more skillful instead to tell the stories of the lower valleys at the bottom of this mountain that, that wait mm. for us and the warm welcome and the comfortable mattress and the dry delicious food and wine and the dry socks that are waiting for us when we get down because then it's about how do you cultivate longing for a low carbon future and that's not the work of reports and graphs it's the work of imagination and poetry and storytelling and it's mm. the work of rebuilding the hippocampus and one of the ways uh, i think the project that you're that you were referring to is is one called art angel which is a thing that i went to go and visit in dundee because i was really curious about that question okay if we've created these conditions for the hippocampus how do you rebuild the hippocampus what does that look like like where do you start how and how would it feel to be part of a process where your hippocampus is being restored so at art angel they're they're a charity <clears throat> they work out of the of, a, of an office on a first floor of a block in the middle of dundee they um they work with people with mental health problems with burnout with trauma with exhaustion with stress with anxiety they say when you come here you're not a patient you're not a client you're an artist and you're preparing work for an exhibition. And every year they put on an exhibition in the main gallery in Dundee. And I went up and I spent a day with them and everybody, everybody there who was there, all the artists who were there knew I was coming and were, re most, were really happy to, to sit with me and tell me their stories. I spoke to one woman who said, um, I have two beautiful children, a partner who I really love. Um, and six months ago, I came that close to taking my own life. You know, she'd had many years of depression and, and uh, she said, but I've been coming here for six months now and I can see the future. I can see the mm. future again. I, it wasn't there before. I spoke to one guy who had worked for many years in local government, who'd had a massive burnout and collapse of self-esteem. I said, so do you think of yourself as an artist? And he paused and he said, aye, why not? <laughs>
you know, you could see people reimagining themselves. And, uh, and one guy I spoke to said, when you've been in the mental health system, if you've been sectioned in the mental health system, he said, I was in a psychiatric ward for two and a half years. Every day at two o'clock, we all got given a cup of tea with milk and two sugars. You know, he said, what are the odds that all 25 of us drink milk with two tea, tea with milk and two sugars? You know, he said, the, the ability to make, you you don't get to make any decisions at all. So even when so people coming into that process, just choosing whether to use a red pencil or a blue pencil to draw a line is a huge, huge thing for people. Um, so it, it, it was, I, when I, at the end of my day there, I sat down with the people who, who run it and I said, well, what are you doing here? Why does this work? And they said, because we're creating a space of safety and we're creating a space of hope. Hmm. And it was one of the things that really stayed with me was, was how little how many people experience neither of those things and that those really are the prerequisites for starting to build a more a more imaginative world i think mm, mm. yeah and i think that's so important that because i mean you often hear or the main conversation about sustainability or sustainable development or whatever phrase we want to use is that we often talk about the things that we can't do that we're not allowed to do anymore but not enough space is given for this imaginative mm. talks about what is actually the desired future that we truly want. And as, as you you always come back to this, that if, if we don't, if we can't imagine a future that we actually want, how will we get there? It's impossible. It's it's impossible. Um, so I wanna I wanna circle back a little bit to dive a little bit deeper into the what if. So could you give examples and talk a bit more about what is a good what-if question? Yeah. Um, I did a talk a while ago for a transition group in Cornwall, and every day for 30 days before the talk, they posted a little graphic on their social media with a different what-if question. And they were things like, what if car parks became play parks? What if birdsong drowned out the traffic? What if uh, the community spirit we experienced during lockdown continued after lockdown? I guess one of the stories that I talk about the most, one of my favorite what if uh, stories is from Liège in Belgium. It's one of the stories in the book where in 2014, a transition group came up with the what if question of what if in a generation's time, the majority of food eaten in Liège came from the land closest to Liège. Hmm. What I love about it is people heard that question and they said, Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What if I'd, I'd really like to see that. And actually I've got a part of that that I can bring, you know, so a good, what if question excites your curiosity. It's a bit like in Alice in Wonderland where she is, where she's drunk the drink that makes her really big. And she's looking through the gate, through the, the door into the beautiful garden, but she can't get through, but she wants to get into that garden. Hmm. It's like a good, what if question does that. And it, and it also is really invitational. So it opens up the possibility that you can step in. And it's also, it's also genuinely asked. It's asked from a place of genuine curiosity and interest. It's not some marketing nonsense. It's not like a sort of, hey, what if you had a, an upgrade on your phone? You know, it's, mm. it's, it's, it's like a, there is a genuine curiosity from the people who are asking it. Uh, and a genuine trust that the people they're asking will will, will respond in the right way. So, uh, you know, in in the in the case of Liège, them asking that question and then inviting together everybody in the city who cared about food to explore mm. that question was that it's now led to the Liège Food Belt project, which is profoundly reimagining the food system for that city. They've created mm -hmm. 27 new cooperatives, raised 5 million euros of investment from local people. It's now the system that is being used to reimagine how the universities, the schools, the hospitals procure their food. It's extraordinary, and it's now spreading all across Belgium and into France as a model that many other local authorities are adopting. But it started with a really good what-if question. And uh, uh, yeah, so that's that's a little bit about what makes a good wife question. Mm. Love that, love that. And if we can Im imagine things a little bit here, if we if we play with the notion of that we're in, we're entering twenty thirty, like the end of this decade. 
ideally, what's your vision for 2030? Could, could you give example of something that would really serve us as humanity that could be present in 2030? I think by 2030, we need to... Uh, so the, the world that I imagine when I do that is a world that is is quieter. It's a world that has embraced the challenges that physics demands of us and seen that as an opportunity to really rethink everything. So our cities now uh, have amazing public transport systems that are free. So we see very few cars now in our in, in, in our cities, as a result of which the air quality now in, in our cities is, is amazing. Uh, we have an education system that has been reimagined to put the cultivation of imagination and the um, <clears throat> the nurturing of young people with the skills and the critical thinking and the resources to be of best service to the climate emergency possible. So all schools now, kids learn to grow food, they learn how to generate energy, they learn how to make things. Uh, it's been profoundly changed. Uh, we have... Um, uh, rebuild our food system so that it no longer uses the kind of unimaginably toxic chemicals that were still used in 2022. And so we're seeing a bounce back of biodiversity. We're seeing soil used in a way that's locking up carbon. And we see farms much more connected to the communities around them. We've moved away from the idea of food as a commodity to food as a, <clears throat> as a universal right. Our societies financially are much more equitable. We've lost that that kind of huge disparity between between the poorest and the richest that we saw back in the early 2020s. We've changed what we measure success by in our economy so that it's now much more about well-being and health and happiness. So we have a completely different set of indicators. Cities now measure their success by the number of children who are out playing in the street, by the number of uh, girls who are able to cycle home on their own after dark, uh, things like this, uh, mm -hmm. on biodiversity measures. We're seeing a bounce back of biodiversity uh, happening around the world. Um, I could go on and on for hours. You know? <laughs> it's, uh, I think that. you know it, it, it would also be a world where 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 the police haven't shot uh, a young person of color. Uh, for many years where we're starting to see the dismantling of the prison industrial complex with a whole different uh, justice system which is based on the fundamental assumption that actually most people are genuinely decent. There's just mm. a really shitty set of circumstances that have led them to that place and it's the circumstances that need addressing. Mm. And we have a health system that looks at health much, much more in the round. And, uh, you know, I would also love to love it to be a future where we've started to, to dismantle borders and uh, and also to, to demilitarize around the world that we've seen popular movements in all countries around the world that have said we're not that Ukraine is the last war that we're going to that there's, mm. it's not, this isn't going to happen again. Why are we still doing this mm. in the 21st century? This is just ridiculous. So we see a we, we see a big sort of dismantling of that kind of infrastructure too and resources going where they need to rather than into the creation of suffering and, 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 and pain. Mm -hmm. uh, so what I'm hearing here is, is this the vision that you and the transition network are kind of going towards? Could you say that? Yeah. I'd say so. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to speak for everybody in the transition no, movement no. because everybody would have their own variation on that. But, you know, it's, it's a thing I always say to people, you know, this is just my story. Your story will be different. But what's really important is that you create that story and that you create space in your life to allow yourself to to, to feel into what that would be. In, in, in the podcast that I do, I start every episode with my two guests of, of getting them to step into my time machine. And together we travel to 2030 and... And actually, a lot of them afterwards say that they really, they really loved it. It was really refreshing. It was something that often, because often as activists, we work with our nose up against the problem all the time. It's all about the problem because the problem is so urgent and pressing. And we don't allow ourselves to just step around the problem and say, you know, what's the, what's the North Star that we're working for here? And how do we keep reconnecting into that? Because the easier part of activism is pointing all the clouds out to people. The harder part of activism, I think, is to really 
conjure up for people the blue sky behind those clouds and to tell the stories and reconnect people to that. We don't have I have a dream politicians anymore. We have we have a politics which is all about, as you said earlier, everything moving in little small, little incremental little steps. And I was in Belgium last week and I did this workshop for, I think I mentioned for 150 CEOs from uh, leading Belgian companies. And we did a whole workshop about imagination together. At the beginning, one of them said to me, well, you know, I'm a great believer that, that that change happens in baby steps, you know, that if we take enough baby steps, then they add up to something bigger. I said, I think I think by the end of this workshop, I'm going to have really challenged that, uh, that, that assumption <laughs> of yours. And at the end, he came up and he said, yes, you've given me a lot to think about. So, uh, yeah, that's what we need to do. Love that, love that. Yeah. But so uh, could you say that, because we haven't really gone into what the transition network is, uh, but could you say that the transition network is a means then for people to come together and work towards their individual and collective visions of what the world could be? I, th I think you can look at the transition movement through many, many different lenses. You can look at it as being an economic development approach. You can look at it as being a set of tools for kind of shared personal development. You can look at it as being a political uh, thing. There's loads of, you know, loads of different ways you can look at it. Uh, you know, we we describe the transition movement as being as being a movement of communities who are reimagining and rebuilding the world. You know, for me, that lens of imagination is really is really useful because because what transition groups do is they create what I like to think of as what if spaces. You know, they create and hold those community reflective spaces to say, okay, it's a climate emergency what are we going to do here with the people we have the resources mm. we have the connections that we have and and unless people at the community scale do that it's not going to happen who else is going to do it the local government rarely happens mm. uh, it doesn't really happen businesses it's not going to happen but what we see in the transition movement is that that scale that piece of the jigsaw puzzle of what you can do where you live with the people around you mm. is is a key a massive untapped resource hmm. uh, and that can be massively transformative. You know, we have transition groups who have started community energy companies now who've raised 15, 16 million pounds worth of investment from local people to build new energy infrastructures. We see uh, places where communities are becoming their own developers for housing projects where they're completely reimagining the food system, you know, and, 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 Peter Kalmus, who is one of my heroes, a, a climate scientist, works for NASA. He was one of the 1,000 scientists who got arrested yesterday around the world, standing up to say, we're scientists and we've had enough of this. You know, We keep telling mm. you, no one's paying attention. He said recently, what gives me hope uh, is the fact that we've barely even tried yet. We've barely even tried. Mm. And when I look at the transition movement and I look at the stories that I see in so many places, some of the ones I've just told you, we've barely tried yet. Resource this stuff properly. Give give community groups um, uh, a, a larger national narrative where governments tell the truth, acknowledge the urgency of the problem, recognize that communities have a massive role to play in it, not that they're going to say, it's all over to you now, communities, and we've messed it up, here you go, but that there's a key role to play and that, and that if you resource it properly and create policy to support that and give funding to support communities to do that, communities mm. could do 20,000 times more stuff than they're doing at the moment and can be a key, key part of this. So that's, mm. that's really, you know, when, when, when we look at the transition movement, for me, it's, it's something which is, um, is, is one piece of the puzzle, but it's a really important piece of the puzzle because mm. people don't wait for permission. They just get on with it and they just start mm. and they start mm. creating things. And I always say to groups when I meet them, the stories that you create, you have no idea how infectious and sticky those stories are going to be and where they're going to go and who they're going to inspire. And what matters is that you do them, however mm. small, however big, however ambitious, do them and, and share the stories. So in many ways, the transition movement is really a, a, a network of story, I think, of people trying stuff, sharing the stories, what worked, what didn't work, how it was. That's one of the ways I think we're going to do this. Love that. Love that. And because uh, I think, I mean, change needs to happen 
in all levels, not only, I mean, we often talk about sustainability and the change needs to happen on government level or politics or, but it's, as you say, it's so powerful to have these kind of change happening from, from the bottom then, mm-hmm. and then affecting up. I mean, we, we have a 16 year old girl that sat outside the parliament in Sweden, right? Um, and see what that turned out to be. Uh, so I really love this. Love it, love it, love it that you can, you as an individual can make change. And if you, if anyone is listening to this and, ah, oh, this sounds really nice and I, I really want to take a step into this, how, how would they go about if they would be more curious about learning more about starting at a transition uh, town or network or community? Uh, what are the steps that they should, should take? Yeah, good question. So, uh, so I think there are something like now 26 countries that have a national organization that supports the transition movement. So Sweden has one as well, and mm. uh, many other places do. So, so find out what your what the what the national organization is where you are. If you look at transitionnetwork.org, there's a thing called Transition Near Me there, where you can put in your address and it'll tell you what's happening near where you are. Uh, there's also a great thing on there. There's there's two great resources on there as well. One is called um, <clears throat> the Essential Guide to Doing Transition, which is a kind of a distilled, a distillation of the experience of 14 years of this movement of people doing this wherever they are. And there's also a thing called 21 Stories of Transition, which gives you a taste of the diversity of of the transition movement in different places. Um, and just start like mm. you know i always say to people you don't need everybody in your town or your city or your neighborhood or your apartment or your university to agree with you you just need a few people who who want to who who feel motivated to do something and a small group of people can do amazing stuff and then it starts to build from there and you know that old question of that old thing of you know if not if not us, then who? And if not now, then where, when, or, you know, it's like, this is the time to start doing something. And, and, um, you know, I, I visit so many places where this is happening and no one's ever said to me, you know, I was doing so much better before I Mm. got involved in transition. And, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like, actually there is something it's, it's, uh, I always say that these are the times where we need the big, bold, beautiful, no, and the big, Mm. bold, beautiful, yes. And some people's expression in this time is the big, bold, beautiful no, like with Extinction Rebellion and the movements who are, who are putting their body in the way and saying this can't happen. But we also need the big, bold, beautiful yes of the people who are starting to build what comes next. And it's not that it's different people. Often it's the same people who do both. When I go over to the big rebellions, I meet so many people who are also involved in transition and the two things work together really beautifully. So mm. yeah, I would really encourage people to to just start just try you know i i always i always tell a little story about a woman who got in touch with us from a town in australia she said oh i'm the only person in our town who cares about transition i'd love to start a transition group but uh, i'm the only person who cares about it in this whole town we said are you how do you know that are you Mm -hmm. sure that you're the only person who's interested in this and and so uh she wrote back to us a month later she said i put an advert in my local paper saying is anybody interested in transition i had 140 replies (laughs) and and now we have a transition group you know it's like you're not the only person where you are who's thinking this stuff there are other people who are waiting for you to be the spark to start this so so be that spark wow that's powerful and we're running up on time here. I could, uh, I think we could go on forever because <laughs> you're obviously an interesting guy to talk to. But we always ask our guests in the end what they would like to encourage to listeners. And you basically just did that. But uh, you're allowed to say, uh, I want to encourage what I just said uh, a few seconds ago. But is there anything else that you would like to end this episode off with to people who are listening? Uh, what would you like to encourage to listeners throughout this decade? I mean, I, I would just distill it down into, I, I was on a I was on a panel recently with a guy who was a, an activist in his 70s and he was asked, you know, his advice to, to younger people, what would you suggest? And he said, be useful. Mm-hmm. Be useful. Mm. And I thought, and I thought it was just beautiful. You know, it's like, don't, don't do something that's like some big vanity ego project or something that's really obscure and academic that no one really understands or something that, that you think would be a great idea, but that doesn't necessarily resonate with anybody else. Be useful, make yourself of service to this time and, mm. uh, uh, yeah. And be kind, 
I think. I think we live in a we live in a world that has really forgotten is forgetting how to be kind and we have mm. to put kindness really back at the heart of the activism that we do as well mm. lovely mm. love that really beautiful way to round this conversation off rob thank you so much um lastly if people would like to find out more about you and the, the projects you're doing uh where would you advise them to to go So if you want to find out more about Transition, so transitionnetwork.org is the home of the transition movement. So my own website is robhopkins.net and uh, you'll find me on Twitter as at robintransition and uh, I'm on Instagram as well, but I don't really understand Instagram. I'm only on Instagram because my son (laughs) said, oh, but dad, no one under 30 looks at Twitter. So I thought, (laughs) all right, I'll put some stuff on Instagram. Um, and, uh, also I do the, the podcast that I do from what if to what next you can find on all good podcast providers, but mm. also we do through Patreon at patreon.com slash from what if to what next. And if people are listening to this and want to subscribe, then you also get, <clears throat> you get every episode the moment it's released and bonus episodes and all kinds mm. of other goodies too. And it helps to support the work that I do and helps us to make the podcast sound amazing. Love that. Mm. Awesome. So we'll make sure to add those links in the the description to this episode. And uh, yeah, the last thing I can just say, thank you so much for taking the time and uh, being in this imaginative space together. Mm. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. And well done for all you guys do as well. Thank you, Rob. Mm. Take care. Take care. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Decade Podcast. I would like to ask you to reflect on anything in this episode that impacted you or left an impression that you could take with you in this decade of action. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend or in your network on social media. And as always, feel free to reach out with feedback, questions or topics you would like us to cover. You can reach us through our social media or on the decade podcast at gmail.com. And we hope to see you more further down the road throughout this decade. Thank you. Until next time.